Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is The Daily Marketer, your weekly dose of growth marketing knowledge for the everyday founder or startup marketer. Season two, we're doing something a little different. We thought, let's bring on people who are growing companies, say a founder of a fitness brand or the CMO of a marketplace startup, and let's hear their growth journey. We thought also, let's bring on people who are subject matter experts in a subsector of marketing think affiliate marketing, SEO, paid acquisition, and let's dive into their brain, suck out that knowledge and bring it to you so you can consider these tools, tactics, and strategies when you are growing your startup. Our guest for today is Daniel O'Neill, a very interesting humanoid. He is a two-time freestyle Frisbee world champion, a World Urban Games gold medalist, former Cirque du Soleil performer, who happens to also be a subject matter expert in recruitment marketing. Yes, Daniel was formerly the VP of Business Development at Bayard, one of the oldest and most reputable advertising agencies in the world. Prior to Bayard, he worked at Recruitix, where he cut his teeth on programmatic job ads and was a top sales performer, bringing in clients in the rapid-growing gig economy space. Outside of programmatic job ads, as I mentioned, Daniel is uh, deeply involved in freestyle frisbee, was a dancer with the world-famous Palabalus Dance Theater, is a tournament director for the freestyle frisbee world championships, and he travels the world doing freestyle frisbee. Damn. Daniel holds a bachelor's in economics, theater, and dance from Columbia University. He has a pretty stacked baseball card. This conversation was eye-opening. Daniel comes completely under the radar, not only in being incredibly good at, seems like, everything he does, uh, but with his knowledge of recruitment marketing. He's a really modest, honest, and fun character at heart. In this chat, we dive into sales strategy, actually, and how to break into a fast-growing industry like gig economy companies. Tactics he used to develop new clients, make sales, and build long-lasting relationships with some of the U.S.'s biggest young gun brands. If you had to ask me, who is this episode valuable for? I would say two people. One, founders who want to consider recruitment marketing for, say, their own marketplace that has buyers and sellers, a supply and demand side. Or two, people who are seeking creative business development strategies for developing new business through sales. And I did want to mention that if you do like this episode, please hit the subscribe button. We're also doing a raffle where if you hit the subscribe button, it enters you into the raffle for a $50 Amazon gift card. What? It's true. Uh, Which we'll announce every other week who is the winner. So if you liked the episode, please share with a friend, leave a comment, or do us the highest honor and subscribe. All right. I hope you enjoy this chat with Daniel O'Neill as much as I did. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, what's up, Jacob? Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. It's great to have you. You have a really colorful background in dance and freestyle frisbee. You've traveled the world. You've worked in programmatic job ads uh, for a very well-known company, Bayard. Uh, I thought a great way to start this conversation would be to 
ask you, what is Speedflow? So Speedflow is like a classification of moves within the sport that I play, freestyle frisbee. So I better start by defining that really generally. So freestyle frisbee is 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 a sport that's kind of comparable to hacky sack. There's an element of dance, but essentially you get together with a small group and you try and do cool tricks with the frisbee. And speed flow is basically at its core, just the extension of throw and catch. So it's just, uh, you know, any two people can go out in the park or on the beach and throw a frisbee back and forth and they're already doing speed flow. But the way you get good at speed flow is you try and incorporate a good variety of catches and throws, throw with both hands, not change your grip after each throw, but flow naturally from the catch to the throw to your partner. So it's kind of uh, taking a, a look at the poetry of, of the throw and catch that you do when you play frisbee. Okay. So to paint the picture for the audience, what, what, what would that look like if, if I was watching it from a distance? What are two people doing? You'd see me and my teammate or me and my friend just about 20, 30 meters apart. You know, I throw a, a big throw high into the air that arcs back to them and they catch it behind their back. And then they throw it under their legs to me and I run down and chase it and like, dive out to grab it and do a somersault and stand up and throw it with the forehand back to them. Um, they tip it up in the air and then catch it behind their head. So I don't know, just, uh, you know, different, different ways of delaying having to, uh, having to catch it or just different ways to, to help a Frisbee fly. I, the analogy I think of, is flowing of water. It's like you're throwing water at each other and as if you could catch water and then you could throw it back to them and then keeping that flow going kind of Bruce Lee-like. Yeah, yeah. There's actually like some moves in our sport that are named after Bruce Lee and hmm. we we look up to Bruce Lee for his flow. Um, and flow is like a really important concept in freestyle. So hmm. yeah, I think that's like a, that's a pretty good analogy. There's definitely... You know, the element of trying to, you know, you know, not break flow, not have anything that's jagged or out of place, but have like a, a natural beauty and a natural rhythm to, to your movements. Totally. You know, Bruce Lee, flow like water, right? There's, that's philosophy. Yeah, exactly. I actually visited uh, the grave of Bruce Lee in, in Seattle. Seattle recently yeah in october yeah. yeah oh very cool and where is where is his grave it's kind of in capitol hill i can't remember the name yeah. of the uh the the cemetery but yeah mm. i guess most people don't memorize the names of cemeteries right uh so yeah. something interesting about cemeteries is that in denmark uh, if you go to Copenhagen, which I have a feeling you've been there, they've converted cemeteries, a lot of cemeteries, into parks that like people stroll through and have picnics at. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Just where they don't have headstones or what? No, no, like, they do. It's it's they they just created paths to go between headstones so people can walk through. Like they're going to the other side of town, they go through the cemetery, and you know. They they had they they have some nice fl floral all over the place, some trees, that sort of a thing. 
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've never been scared of cemeteries. There's something serene about them. So that makes sense to me. You should read the book, uh, The Graveyard Book. Have you heard of that? No. It's by Neil Gaiman. And it's a really great, it's it's total fiction, but it's about a, a kid that finds peace and he develops some friends in a cemetery. Yeah. I, I, I would listen to an audiobook. It's really good. Cool. So anyway, going back. So how did you start playing freestyle frisbee? So I started with ultimate. I played ultimate frisbee in high school. And when I got to college, I moved to New York when I was like 18. And when I got to college, um, I I wasn't good enough to keep playing soccer or basketball. I always was a big athlete growing up, but Maybe it wasn't that even that I wasn't good enough. But anyway, I went to D1 school. I wanted to focus on theater and dance. So I wasn't going to keep playing basketball and soccer, uh, at least competitively. So I was kind of looking for something to fill what had been like a huge part of my life athletically up until that point. And I just stumbled upon freestyle frisbee. Like my friend, my first friend I made in college in my orientation group, had played this sport, had learned over the summer back in Austin, Texas, where he's from, and introduced me to it and introduced me to like a group of players in New York City. A lot of them older who had been playing since the 70s, who were Mm -hmm. amazing mentors and were looking for people to coach. So we kind of just fell into it right when we started college. It was at the same time that I was really ramping up training and dance. I was taking a lot of ballet modern dance so the two complemented each other my dance classes made me a better frisbee player uh all the frisbee training was helping me be a better dancer and so uh i had a lot of time back in college to to put in my genius hours and just get really good so that's it it really started in college to to make a, a long answer short what made you want to study dance in college so i've I've wanted to be an actor from a very young age, like from age nine. I think I had an agent when I was a kid. I was in like some, I was in a a nation national run pizza hut commercial, some short films. Um, and so I always really liked acting, storytelling, um, performing live performing, especially. And I majored in theater and dance in college. So I always felt like, you know, as an actor, your body is your instrument, like the training and a variety of different movement styles and specifically dance is only going to help me better use my instrument as an actor. Um, So it was a no brainer for me to study dance, especially being in New York um, where there's such amazing teachers and and we're in the arts capital like i just Mm -hmm. felt like i got a jump on everybody else by you know by getting those you know i don't know by by starting early not really i started way too late in a sense like can barely lift my you know leg above 90 degrees so i was never going to be a ballet dancer but um but just to in that collegiate environment to be able to jump into the professional world of New York and start training and dance and theater. Just, uh, it was good for me. So dance and Frisbee have always gone hand in hand and both of those, because, you know, I really see myself as a, as a performer in, in a sense. 
And, and what kind of dance did you study in, in college? Everything from African dance, jazz, tap. But, you know, really my focus was in modern dance because it's what I could get away with. Again, like I was not, I had not had classical training from a young age. So my technique was never like super polished. And so, yeah, I took a lot of ballet every semester. Amazing foundation. In recent years, I've shifted and taken way more yoga. And like yoga is like a huge part of my physical practice now. Um, But for the same reasons, I kind of equate ballet and yoga in that there's like a specific form that you come to, you, you know, you come to meet it every day and try and get to that platonic ideal of, mm-hmm. of the, the form. So it's, uh, it's good for me to have, you know, those rigid structures to come up against and some discipline because, you know, I work better when in a group environment than when I've got, got some discipline to lean against. I can attest to that too. Uh, in, in some way, the, the, the accountability just makes you reach a higher level of yourself, right? Yeah. For sure. Well, well, in that vein, how has dance and freestyle frisbee shaped you after studying it in college and becoming a world champion in it? Yeah, I mean, I to this day I consider myself a, an actor and a dancer. By you know, I've, I was watching your your uh, an earlier one of your podcasts from mm-hmm. maybe your first season, and you were talking about personal brand and how you have to develop a personal glossary and have these kind of terms that uh, you want to be associated with and that you want people to think of you as. Yeah, your keywords. Dancer, actor, salesman, performer, um, you know, frisbee player, world champion. Those are among the tags that I would throw into my glossary for sure. And in terms of how it shaped me, well, I was was dancing professionally full-time, um, in the first like four or five years after I graduated college, mm-hmm. um, and 29 now. Yeah. 20. Yes, I am. I just turned 29, uh, like a couple of days ago. Um, so yes, I'm 29 and yeah, maybe not. I guess it was a whole month ago. Damn it. It's time. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm 29, man. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm with you. All right. So it's happening. Yes. I'm 29. So <laughs> I, I did that and um you did that you know, for the first few years after graduating yeah yeah and i was always like working in restaurants uh bartending catering as kind of my my side hustles my moonlighting mm-hmm. jobs and stuff like that um and then at a certain point i i kind of fell into sales and uh marketing mm. um by accident almost but i was just getting really jaded working in restaurants i was like God damn, I've got this Ivy League education, getting treated like shit. I'm not making any money. Um, I'm not even like, you know, feeling the creativity and the freedom I, I want to be able to pursue these other things that I love. So it just wasn't working out the, the way I imagined it. And even though I was having a lot of success as an actor and a dancer, it's still project and gig based for the most part i mean you you get an awesome opportunity and then you're kind of back to square one when that when that runs its course so yeah i i thought geez i let me make a tough 
sacrifice now, but invest in my future self by Mm. getting something white collar on my resume, getting some skills that are monetizable and going to put me in a better position to not have to slave away and pick up people's dishes and whatever I got. I mean, I got a lot of respect for those jobs and, and I really enjoyed catering and, and some aspects of it, but I'm so super happy to be on the other side of my hospitality career. Let me tell you. I worked in restaurants too for four and a half years all through college. And, you know, when, when I traveled, I did it. I did it in Norway. I, I worked hospitality and catering in Australia. And yeah, it, by the end of it, I was like, for my sanity, I, I just, I can't, I can't do this. It's, it's nice to know that you are able to do it and you can hustle in that environment and you can make some decent money. But for calling to your higher self, it's like, you know, you got to go do something something different maybe and even if it's uh if you can still have a work-life balance and being able to do dance and freestyle frisbee and travel while having that full-time job uh like all power to you right yeah and i mean i and to go kind of tie it back to your original question about how dance how being a dancer and an actor has shaped me i mean i bring those skills into my professional career as a salesman 1000 million percent. I mean, I see marketing and sales as storytelling and relationship building and being authentic and making friends. And like, that's, it's a lot of the same skills that, um, that have made me a successful salesman that I attribute to, you know, everything I learned um, in my performing arts career. Did you see The Greatest Showman with Hugh Jackman? (laughs) <laughs> no, I didn't. You got to see it because it has the perfect blend of exactly what you just said of, you know, expression and theater and market, basically experience and salesmanship uh, with blending. He's he's trying to figure out how to run this, this you know, what is it? He, he was, uh, I don't think he was P.T. Barnum, but he did something like identical to it. And he had a hard time getting people to want to come to do, to see it. And actually accept it because the people that he was bringing in were so different than what you would typically see in a in a circus show. Like in a typical circus show, you would see, you know, them taming a lion or them doing some sort of like a trapeze show. He was like, "No, I want to take it to the next level." And uh, it's it's all about like how he markets at the booth, at the ticket booth, how he gets how he speaks to people, uh, like how the actors interact with people, and he, it's all about the experience the entire way through. It's a great film. I'm, I'm watching that tonight. Is that on You're Netflix gonna. or Amazon or what? I, I, I bet you it's on Amazon. It's, okay. it's, it's got it all. Nice. Yeah. Well, well, this ties really nicely into, so, so how did you get into the marketing realm? It sounds like you started doing actually sales in, in the marketing industry. Yeah. So I made this decision that I wanted to, to you know, to get some, some white collar experience and... I had a vague hunch that sales was going to be a good fit for me, that I was going to be good at it. And I really just got my first job through nepotism. I'm just like family, friends, dad threw me a bone and and gave me a job as an entry-level sales development representative. At um, Recruitings. Yeah, at a company called Recruitings, which is a recruitment marketing agency 
um, which is a quickly growing space and the one that, that you and I on the yep. professional side know very well. Um, so, so I was lucky to get into this pretty young company at a time when the space of recruitment marketing and employer branding was essentially exploding. So within four months of me being hired there, I went from being an entry-level SDR to being their top producing enterprise sales rep. And I like, and you know, I'd seen a bunch of 50 year old men get fired right before me in, in my job. So it goes to show that it was that, I don't know. I, I, I in general, I think that that sales is, is changing quickly and that, you know, young social media savvy people yeah. have a, have a leg up. So I don't know. So for whatever that's worth, I, I, I just kind of fell into it and, and, and got into essentially enterprise sales for recruitment marketing and employer branding. So my job uh, was to go and find companies, big companies, Fortune 500 companies, uh, gig economy companies, companies that are spending time, money, marketing to try and attract people to join them, whether that's Uber that needs lots and lots of drivers around the country, whether that's a, a restaurant chain, retail, hospitals, um, anybody that hires at volume needs to put the word out there to, you know, to 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 get the eyeballs and the candidates to to staff their their workforce. So it was on me to. Uh, to engage companies, to help them strategize around how they were going to do that. Um, and that's been in my last two roles. First at Recruitix and most recently at Bayard, which is similarly uh, an employer brand and, and recruitment marketing agency. So, so did you consciously start gravitating towards marketplace companies and for the audience, marketplace companies being Uber, DoorDash, uh, anything with a two-sided marketplace of there's people that supply this service uh, or the good and then there's people that want the good? Yes, I did. I absolutely did. Um, and like for this, and again, it, it, was, uh, it was just right, right place, right time. Because it was, you know, about five years ago, 2016, 2017, was right in a moment where VCs were pouring money into any new, you know, Uber for X or gig yep. economy startup that, that they yeah. can find. Um, and I think that there's some consolidation happening now. But at least in, in that moment in time, when I was starting... It was like there was just a lot of money flowing through these companies, and also it was an easy an easy sales pitch for a couple reasons. One, uh, smaller bureaucracy from which to find my buyer. If I have to go sell to Macy's, there's a freaking talent acquisition team, a hundred people deep that I got to mine through to find the right person who's focused on programmatic and whatever. But, you know, at a company like Rover, where you used to work or some of these smaller marketplaces, there's one young dude who gets it. And if I can find that dude, then I'm well on my way to making a sale. Um, yeah. And then the other thing is that for marketplaces, they really get the ROI. Real easy case. Like yeah. for Uber, it's like they tie the talent so directly to 
how they make bottom line revenue as a business. It's yep. a little, there's one or two more steps of removal in a general B2C retail business. They're yeah. hiring people. They need those people to work the cash registers, but it's one step removed. We're, we're you know, the Uber, the drivers, that's their service. That is their business. Without the drivers, they have no business un- until they make self-driving cars, but at least for the for the moment. Yeah, totally. I, I think what makes you a great salesman is one, you're, you're really personable. Uh, two, you're a great listener. And three, you're, you're really present with people. And the latter of the two seems to be strengths that you can't help but to have from being in the performing arts, right? Because when you're performing or, you know, doing freestyle frisbee, you're not probably, you're not thinking about like, oh, what am I going to do? You know, what am I going to have for lunch? Like, oh, that person said this thing. I got to reply to this text. It's like, because it pulls you in, you can't help but to be immersive into it. And then therefore that becomes a second bit of like a second nature habit for you. Right. And that, that seems to lend so great to if you're interacting with a person that's, you know, might take, might become your client, uh, that you're, that they're really going to be like, Oh man, I think they really do understand what I need. And I mean, at the end of the day, I, I'm not the first one to say it, but you buy from people that you like and yeah. you, yeah, I mean, it sales is a personal, is a personal game. And I always, whether it was recruiting or Bayard or, or anywhere, like sell myself first. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, my, my first goal is just to make a friend and to try and let a guard down because we certainly both know what it's like sitting on the other side and just getting God knows how many random messages on LinkedIn about shit that you do not care about one drop and so there's there's so much noise and so much bullshit and so many people all just trying to hustle and do their job for what it's worth but the vast majority of them you do not want to talk to so how can i cut through that noise and actually be somebody that you want to give the time of day and that you actually that you're going to get value from and and that you want to talk to um so easier said than done but that's the that's the ploy of of us salespeople. Yep, yep. And and you, you have to get creative and do non-status quo things to be able to break through. You, you talked about your strategy to uh, being able to dig through the levels within a startup company or a marketplace company because it, it, actually there's the window of opportunity there. So so I think that's that's in itself a really creative way to approach it. Uh, so. Maybe could you tell us what is programmatic job ads? And I know this also goes by maybe recruit, recruiting, marketing, uh, but maybe describe that really quick for us. Yeah, sure. So, so programmatic job advertising is is kind of this big new buzz um, that has grown over the past five to six years, um, and it's borrowed from consumer advertising five years but it's only really hit that early adopter stage or started to kind of come up the parabola in terms of how people are using it for recruiting in the past five years or so but essentially uh the idea is to uh generally this is speaking for performance-based 
job sites. So pay mm-hmm. per click, um, which is a, which is a, a new trend in in the recruiting industry generally, right? It used mm-hmm. to be monster career builder. You pay your money to post your static job for one month. It sits there. You get the traffic that you get, and you don't get upset. But there's no you know that that has that has drastically changed over the past you know years and now much more common is paper performance if not mm-hmm. paper applicant at least paper click that's indeed that's ZipRecruiter, that's glassdoor that's um lots and lots of job sites so rather than manage each of those job sites individually and talk to an indeed sales rep and a ZipRecruiter sales rep um, and try to manage the performance of those on each platform individually. Programmatic is trying to benefit from optimization, machine learning, a bit of uh, artificial intelligence to make this uh, an easier and more efficient and uh, better process with better results. So essentially, you take Indeed, ZipRecruiter, Glassdoor, and a whole network of other pay-per-click job sites, and you put them into one aggregated network, so to speak, and have them compete for your budget. And whichever job sites uh, are going to be able to deliver traffic for the lowest uh, cost per click will earn your budget, so to speak. Yeah. So it's essentially uh, Google AdWords. If, if your listener base is familiar with Google AdWords, it's kind of like a Google AdWords specifically built for recruiting where you can pull some levers in the background to uh, put some logic in place to determine how do you want to spend your marketing budget um, across this network of job sites. Okay. And I hope that's a decent... No, I thought Definition. that was great. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so so so. If people know what programmatic display is, as in it's very targeted display ads across the internet to specific sites. Like if someone's trying to sell frisbees, they would only post display ads on frisbee blogs or you know c- characteristics of places where people like to go who are into that sort of a subject, right? So it's now it's specific to job postings where people apply for for specific keywords and then being able to uh, optimize, cut out the sources that aren't really doing great and doubling down on the sources that are doing great for you and bringing candidates. Yeah, exactly. So for example, if you've got an RN job uh, in California, you probably are going to go to, you know, hired nurses and my CNA jobs and like some niche sites that are specific to, uh, where nurses live and where they're going to be looking for jobs on the internet. And you're probably not going to post to retail jobs at yeah. restaurantjobs.com. I mean, that's a brutally stupid example, but uh, it's it, that's the that's the kind of logic and it gets a lot more granular with, you know, day parting, trying to identify, you know, very specifically where your job seeker base is going to live and when and what you need to pay for it to beat your competition. So that's the nuts and bolts. And then uh, as all marketing and a lot of, I think what, what you push in your podcast is it's all about testing Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, you're not going to get it 
exactly right the first time and the landscape changes super quickly. So even if it's right today, it's not a guarantee that it's going to be right tomorrow. So with programmatic job advertising, it's extremely important to be able to track it well. Otherwise, uh, you'll never know if what you're doing is any good or not. But, um, but yeah, a big part of the game is optimization and making small tweaks and adjustments along the way um, as the data comes in. Yeah, it takes it takes a lot of patience to to, to to reach something that it's it's almost like you're chiseling a bust, and you're like, oh, it's coming along, you know, like this. It's like the the shape of this this guy that I'm that I'm chiseling away, and it's like, you know, it's coming together, right? Like it really does take that patience and the and the that thought and that feedback signal. Hey, sexy ladies and gentlemen, that was part one to our two-part conversation with our guest. Arguably, the second half is actually better than the first, so I suggest you go and listen to that. Also, before you go, I want to ask you for one small favor. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please help grow the show with me by either one, reviewing on Apple Podcasts, or two, subscribing to the show. To give you a little background to why those two, it's because both have a material effect in growing the ranking of the show in podcast categories through the iTunes podcast ranking system, similar to how Google search ranks and organizes top sites for a specific search. To sweeten the deal, we're going to do something a little special. If you review the show on Apple Podcasts, I'm going to enter you into a $50 Amazon gift card raffle, which we're going to announce the winner of every other Thursday. It's simple. Review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that little purple podcast app on your phone. Scroll to the bottom of the show and hit add review. 10 words, 10 seconds, very easy. You'll be entered into a $50 Amazon gift card raffle, which we're going to announce the winner of every other Thursday. It's free money, y'all. You got to love that. If you wouldn't mind doing that, that would be freaking amazing. Thank you. Take care and good night.